Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Uh, good morning, good afternoon. It's a, it's a pleasure to welcome Jens Stoltenbeck for that uh, meeting in the European Council. You know that, uh, it's that time again. EU leaders are gathering here in Brussels for another European Council, chaired by its president, Charles Michel. Ukraine will be uh, an important topic on the, on the agenda. Uh, Although these meetings of EU leaders happen relatively often, the shock news of an aborted insurrection in Russia, led by Wagner Group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin, is overshadowing the meeting in Brussels. President Zelensky joined leaders via video link from Kiev on Thursday. Also joining was NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, who's now expected to stay on for another year at the helm of the defence organisation. Thank you so much, uh, President uh, Michel de Charles. It's a great uh, honour to be back and thank you so much for inviting me to the European uh, Council. And thank you also for your personal commitment to the strategic partnership between the European Union and uh, uh, NATO. And, uh, Among the other topics on the agenda, the thorny issue of migration and the EU's relations with China. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Political's Chief Brussels Correspondent, and joining me today beneath the glass atrium of the European Council building in Brussels, where hundreds of journalists are gathered covering this summit, is our Senior France Correspondent, Clea Colcott, Hans van der Berchard, our Senior Politics Reporter, who has come here from Berlin, and Barbara Moons, Senior Trade Correspondent. Hi there, guys. Hi, Suzanne. Hi. Hi there. Clea, coming to you first. Now, President Macron of France arrived here earlier today, but he has domestic problems of his own. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we're in the second day of unrest in France. So after the death of a 17-year-old young man in a, uh, during a police a traffic stop, where images emerged on social media of a police officer shooting at point range a young man and, and this just spread like wildfire over the internet and sparked these, uh, these protests and unrest and running battles between youths and the police now first in the first night around the Paris suburbs and now into the second night we've seen it in major cities across France. And of course, tonight is going to be a big test for Emmanuel Macron. They've deployed 40,000 police officers and they're sending out messages to appease the population. The police officer has been arrested. He's now been transferred to prison and everybody's on tenterhooks. Now, what we're hearing here is 
that the President Macron is following the situation very closely, even though he's in the room there with leaders. And so far, we haven't heard him either in doorsteps. It remains to be seen whether he'll talk to us later tonight. Fascinating. We'll be watching that closely, what's happening in France. And a reminder, really, that even though the EU 27 leaders are here around the EU table, they've all got domestic issues to deal with at the same time. Yeah, and actually the Belgian Prime Minister, Alexander de Croix, obviously he has the benefit that his hometown is the same town as where we are for the European Council. He just went back and forth after the lunch with Stoltenberg to the Belgian Parliament because his foreign minister was under attack from some of his coalition partners. So it is kind of an indication that everyone is kind of having some domestic issues in their minds as well. Because there were there were signs during the week that maybe the Belgian government could be in trouble, that it could fall. Yeah, What's the situation now? Exactly. And the whole saga kind of concerned the Belgian foreign minister, Hajal Abib, who will be taking on the, the council presidency for Belgium when it comes to foreign affairs, EU affairs and trade in the first half of 24. And she was under fire because she had granted an Iranian delegation visa earlier this month. She got a lot of criticism on that from her coalition partners, the Greens and the Socialists, also about the way she communicated about the whole affair after. But it now looks like it has passed and that the current government will stay in place, at least for now. But of course, look, the bigger themes here at this summit, it's all about Ukraine again. The NATO Secretary General, you heard him there at the top of the podcast, he opened proceedings here. President Zelensky also beamed in from Kiev and addressed leaders via a video link. But the big issue has really been the development in Russia over the weekend, where the leader of the Wagner Group, Prigozhin, led an attempted insurrection, attempted coup. And that's really been the kind of focus all week here in Brussels. I mean, Hans, what have you been hearing about this? Well, all European leaders in the past days, but also especially here arriving at the European Council, have been very keen to stress that this is an internal Russian uh, affair and that the EU or the West more broadly is not interested in a regime change in Russia. So the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said it like this as he arrived this morning. He said, we, we don't want a regime change in Russia. What we are interested in is an independent Ukraine. And our goal here is nicht ein Regierungswechsel, ein Regime-Change und Russland. Unser Ziel, das wir verfolgen, ist eine unabhängige Ukraine. What he also said, and I found this very interesting, is he, he said last night in a TV interview that this whole mutiny, this uh, coup in uh, Russia shows that there are already cracks in Putin's system. And of course, they're watching very closely how this is unfolding. And he also said this morning as he arrived at the summit that, uh, well, uh, it all shows that it's probably not so good to rely too much on private military companies and that Wagner is creating a lot of instability in uh, Russia, but it's also responsible for uh, horrific crimes in Africa, in Ukraine, and that those people have to be held accountable. Yeah, I mean, huge geopolitical implications, not just for Ukraine, but the whole future of the Wagner mercenary group. So, I mean, a lot of the discussion here about Ukraine, we had, we heard that Zelensky used his address to again appeal to the EU to accelerate EU membership. And we've just learned that Pedro Sanchez, the Spanish Prime Minister, is going to travel to Kiev this weekend to mark the start of Spain's presidency of the Council of the European Union. And um, But another kind of theme on the whole issue of Ukraine was a language around security commitments. And, you know, us journalists covering these summits parse the language, parse the communication 
and um, the different drafts of these had come out and that was a, an unusual addition and um, the idea of the EU providing security commitments some countries in the EU are uncomfortable not least the neutral countries Ireland, Malta, Austria about what this means Claire this seems to have been very much a French initiative yeah indeed this is something the French have been pushing for a long time so the conversation has broadly been around security guarantees and the sort of AAA security guarantee that we have is NATO Article 5, which means that if you're attacked, all the other NATO members will come to your defence. Now, the conversation has shifted in that the West, you know, France, other countries want to offer security guarantees to Ukraine that won't be Article 5 of NATO membership because that's difficult with a country that's actually at war. And so conversations have been circling around, you know, commitments, bilateral commitments, multilateral commitments to supporting Ukraine on the long term. Now, it's interesting that it's popped up at the EU. Now, what the French are saying is that they think that at a time when Russia is showing weakness, it's important that the EU shows unity. And so including security commitments is a way of including that sort of language in the European framework. I mean, it's interesting that distinction between NATO and the EU. And as we just mentioned, the NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg was here today. But that's quite unusual as well. I mean, they are different institutions. But of course, this whole issue of security guarantees for Ukraine is going to be the key issue or one of the key issues at the NATO summit in Vilnius just in a couple of weeks time. But I think it's interesting this language around security commitments is maybe deliberately vague. But at the same time, even other countries are saying, well, are we kind of muddying the waters? And now the EU is kind of half vaguely responsible for commitments when really this should be a NATO issue. Yeah, and if I can just briefly chime in there, uh, what German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is always saying is that we need to prepare for this war to potentially last much longer. So what we especially need now is continued military support, but also economic and financial support, plus humanitarian support, to really make sure that Ukraine stays resilient as a country, not only militarily, but also economically, financially. And uh, this is really what the Germans think. And there's maybe a bit of a difference toward the French who like to talk more of about concrete security guarantees, whereas the Germans are saying, let's just do on different levels, all sorts of steps that just make sure that Ukraine keeps existing. And as I say, going to be a huge theme of the NATO summit in July. Now, another big concern here on the sidelines and in the room we're hearing between EU leaders is the issue of Belarus. The apparent exile of this Russian warlord to Belarus, a strong ally of Russia, has rang alarm bells, particularly among the Baltic nations that are so closely geographically located in relation to Belarus. Now, our colleagues Lily Byer and Jacopo Baragazzi, senior reporters based here in Brussels with us, sat down on the sidelines of the summit on Thursday with Lithuanian President Gitaunas Narseda. Now Lithuania, it shares a border with Belarus and as I say, Prigozhin has been granted exile there. Putin moved nuclear weapons into the country recently and now the speculation that Wagner troops, these mercenaries, are also in Belarus. And so Jacopo started by asking him how EU leaders are responding to this concern, the situation in Belarus. You know, I will be frank, right now Nobody knows exactly what is going on in Russian Federation in Belarus. And probably this is the wrong time to make any strict predictions what will happen tomorrow after tomorrow. Yes, we have a high need for additional information, intelligence data, 
and we uh, closely working to gather such kind of information and I don't have any doubts this excellent coordination between the intel intelligence units of different countries but uh, it's just too early to say that uh, look the situation the status quo is like this and we have to plan our activities uh, using this information and from this status quo no it's not the case so this is the reason why we should uh, be patient we ha have to collect uh, information and only then decide what to do next and Lily asked him about the possibility of Wagner forces in Belarus. So far, this is not reality. According to our intelligence data, uh, we can talk only about uh, some persons which are already in Belarus, maybe Prigozhin, but I still think that we cannot by 100% rely on uh, statements by Alexander Lukashenko. But anyway, if it happens and if uh, there will be quite significant number of uh, Wagner uh, serial killers, killers or uh, armed uh, groups, of course that will be additional uh, source of instability in our region. Uh, so far it's too early uh, to make any conclusions how these military forces of Wagner could be used against Ukraine, maybe with some political intentions inside Russian Federation, maybe to organize another mutiny uh, against uh, Putin regime. But it is very likely they, that uh, these troops could be used in Africa because Lukashenko is actively involved, engaged in operations with Africa, sometimes of economic nature just earning money, writing, uh, uh, saying directly. And uh, Wagner groups, of course, ha having big experience, uh, experience in this field could be useful in this regard. But for us, anyway, it means additional leverage of instability in the hands of Alexander Lukashenko. And we know this neighbor very good. Uh, we should analyze the uh, events la of last uh, several months as a complex. First announcement of uh, Vladimir Putin to deploy tactical nuclear weapons in uh, Belarus. This is happening. This is not finalized, but this is a matter probably of the weeks. Then um, threats uh, of different kind, uh, aggressive rhetoric, uh, also illegal migration. Yes, it is much lower than it used to be uh, two years ago, but it is still there. And still there are the plans to bring additional migrants to Belarusian territory in order to destabilize our border. Previously, of course, Belarus sent migrants across the border into the EU. Now, Lithuania is concerned that this might happen again. My idea was to say that, look, one day those illegal migrants could be Wagner fighters. Are we prepared for such kind of challenge? Yes, we built our fences. We have the surveillance systems in place, but they can use also these green men or uh, Wagner fighters as illegal migrants. Why we do not have the right to reject such possibility in the future.
So this shows that we have to be prepared. We have to understand that illegal migration or instrumentalized migration in the hands of tyrants like Alexander Lukashenko or Vladimir Putin is different kind of migration. So this requires the decisions which are suitable for this kind of migration. Thanks to Lilian Yakubov for bringing us that conversation with the Lithuanian president. Now, finally, turning to another conversation that's happening here at the summit, uh, leaders are going to be discussing migration policy, always a controversial issue around the EU table. But it's also going to be a conversation about China, another thorny issue politically for the EU. Barbara Munt, bring us up to speed on why are the EU discussing this at this summit and what kind of outcomes or positions are we likely to see? Yeah, you do see with the Russia's war in Ukraine, you do see a shift to talk more about China in in different terms, right, in more aggressive terms when it comes to its relations with Beijing. The European Commission recently published its economic security strategy, which kind of brings the two strands of economic relations, trade and national security together, as the US and Japan have been doing for quite some time. It's still a sensitive issue in Europe. And in the end, leaders decided not to really go in depth on that economic security strategy, because specifically in in the big capitals like Paris and Berlin, they first want to get a little bit more into the weeds on that subject. But we do have a discussion on China in general. And there was a lot of haggling beforehand on the specific language in the the summit conclusions. The latest draft that we have seen softens the tone a little bit, especially when you compare it with G7 language, also with recent European Commission language. And there you see a little bit the hands of European Council President Charles Michel, who has been less transatlantic than European Commission President Ursula von der line and so more pro-China as some say it and also a little bit the language of, of Paris and Berlin uh, when it comes to those council conclusions on China. Yeah I mean this idea of the challenge of getting unity between 27 EU countries on China policy particularly when so many countries Germany, France, Spain, Portugal, Ireland have so many economic links with China. It is interesting that this language that was it seems to have been pioneered effectively by Ursula von der Leyen de-risking rather than decoupling. Here the headline is de-risk not decouple. I'm glad that members... States- this has really taken off now as a kind of a catchphrase when it comes to the West talking about China. Yeah, exactly. And it was a big issue. How much do we have to yeah, decouple, de-risk, uh, especially as we have seen the energy dependency when it comes to Russia after the war in Ukraine. So there has been a push, especially in the past, from the U.S. to completely decouple, so to cut as much trade relations with China as possible. The EU pushed back against that, saying that you know we should obviously look at our dependencies, especially if we have too much dependencies from, from China, then we should kind of de-risk away, so to make sure that we're not too vulnerable for certain trade relations. And the language that von der Leyen has now crafted around this is indeed has become not just European language, but also a little bit American language. You see that the transatlantic allies have become closer when it comes to handling China. There's push from both sides, right? The US has been pushing to go stronger. The EU has kind of softened that. But you do kind of see that language converging now in the G7 and also within the European Union. Although we do have to say that when it comes to internally within the 27, as you said, there is still a lot of division as well, how far we should push against China. 
and the idea being not to completely cut off trade with China, but just in certain specific areas where maybe national security is an issue or sovereignty that, yes, we should kind of de-risk and, and reduce that dependency on China, but not completely cut off uh, trade with China. And I think that's coming up a bit in the White House, too. We've seen, we've heard from the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen kind of making this point, too. After all, the U.S. Uh, still does a lot of trade with China. Thanks for that, Barbara, Clea and Hans. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Now, leaving the action here at the European Council in Brussels, coming up next, we have an interview with Scotland's new First Minister, Hamza Youssef, about his country's relationship with the European Union. So we have strong support for Scotland becoming a member of the European uh, Union. Strong support for independence. Independence, you know, is around about 50-50. So there is still an important job for us to do, for those who believe in independence, to persuade people of the case. Stay with us. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. It's been a tumultuous few months for the Scottish National Party, Scotland's largest political group, Nicola Sturgeon, its long-time leader, resigned unexpectedly. A few months later, she was arrested but released without charge over a funding scandal that has engulfed the party. This week, her successor, Humza Youssef, Scotland's first Muslim leader, was in Brussels. I caught up with him at Scotland House, the country's representation to the EU just overlooking the Schumann roundabout here in the heart of Brussels. It's probably worth emphasising that this is my first visit, uh, international visit, uh, that I'm conducting. And it's not by coincidence or accident that I'm in Brussels. Um, Scotland very much views itself as a European nation. Uh, We have, of course, been taken out of the European Union very much against our will. Uh, That will be well known to people. 62% of Scotland voted to stay within the European Union. Uh, But we, unfortunately, uh, have been taken out uh, of the European Union uh, as I say, against our will. So really important for me to come to the European Union, speak to business, speak to our partners in trade and investment and industry, 
uh, but also speak to the European Commission about the importance that we place on being a European nation and continuing to have those European values. Yousaf here is referring, of course, to Brexit, the landmark referendum in 2016 that brought Britain outside the EU and Scotland with it, despite the fact that the majority of Scots voted against Brexit, as the First Minister just explained. The Scottish National Party believes that Brexit has changed the calculus for voters since the Scottish independence referendum back in 2014, which saw Scotland choose to remain part of the UK. I mean, it's a material change of circumstances. Uh, you know, if people in 2014 had known what would happen in 2016, I've got no doubt that people would have voted for Scotland to become an independent country back then. So, look, we we have seen, in fact, uh, in the latest polls, that uh, those opposed to Brexit are now at 70% of the population, so even higher than when the referendum on Brexit took place. So we have strong support for Scotland becoming a member of the European uh, Union, strong support for independence. Independence, you know, is is around about 50-50. So there is still uh, an important job for us to do, for those who believe in independence, to persuade people of the case. Uh, And that will be done through a very positive vision. But part of that positive vision is being part of a European Union where we share the values of, of, of countries in Europe. But also, frankly, we have access to a single market that's seven times the size of the market that the UK is. But even if an independent Scotland, and that's a big if, given it is still part of the UK, chose to rejoin the EU, huge challenges remain. Not least opposition from some member states. Spain, for example, has concerns given the possible implications for Catalonia, a region of Spain with a strong independence movement. It's worth actually looking at recent statements from the Spanish government. I should say we have a very warm relationship with the Spanish government. And in fact, I was in London just a few weeks ago meeting with the, the Spanish ambassador. Now, I, I won't speak for the Spanish government. It's for them to articulate their views. But they've made it abundantly clear, and I agree with them, that the situations in Scotland and Catalonia are different situations. We can't compare different independence movements with each other. Uh, we are, uh, from a Scottish perspective, um, this is a domestic matter for, for Scotland and the UK governments to find a way through. And while, of course, we have always had strong relationships with our, our, our friends and partners in Catalonia, the decision about Catalan independence is one between the Spanish government and, and the region of, of Catalonia. So uh, for me, I think if you looked at most recent statements uh, from the Spanish government, uh, they would be at pains to stress the difference. Uh, and I should say we would be at pains to stress uh, the difference in our independence uh, movements uh, as well. So I, I don't doubt that Scotland has a lot to offer. Uh, the European Union, I think we've also got a lot to gain from being part of the European Union. So why would you not want a country that has the renewable potential that we do, for example, some of the world-class, the best universities in the world, why would you not want uh, that country uh, that's based in Northern Europe to be part of the European Union? Yousaf also makes the point that, unlike other countries in the line to join the EU, for example in the Western Balkans, Scotland was previously a member. As I say, the case for independence is intrinsically linked with being a member of the European Union. But we also fully accept that we are going to have to follow you know, accession rules and normal accession rules. Uh, of course, these are always part of a negotiation and, and discussion. But we are quite uniquely placed, and I'm not sure there is any other country, in fact, there's not any other country that has been part of the European Union for as long as we have been taken out of the European Union against as well and then looking to rejoin. And that's why we've taken a very deliberate decision where we have responsibilities of devolved competency 
to ensure that we are as aligned with the EU as we possibly can be. So when that accession process begins, we're already in a really strong starting position. In the meantime, the big question for Scotland and the SNP is if and when a second referendum on independence will take place. In a blow to the SNP, the UK Supreme Court ruled late last year that the Scottish government cannot hold an independence referendum without the UK government's consent. The last few months have been really difficult for the SNP, uh, maybe maybe some of the most difficult months we've had uh, in recent times. But what's interesting is, d- despite that difficulty and challenge, support for independence has been rock solid. So even where support for the party may have dipped, support for the, actually the cause of independence has been absolutely rock solid. In fact, the last few polls, many of them showing support above 50%. So uh, support for independence is, is there. I would suggest it's going to be uh, growing undoubtedly as people continue to see the damage that Brexit inflicts uh, upon us. In terms of the plans for a second referendum, if it was in my control, we would have had it yesterday. You know, we we are desperate, uh, frankly, to give people the choice because we absolutely believe that Scotland, if the people of Scotland have given that choice, would vote for independence. Now that route to us in terms of a referendum, the legally binding referendum, because we'll only ever pursue independence through a democratic route, I think it's important to re-emphasise that. That's being denied to us by the UK government. So the next time we can test that proposition for independence is during the next national election. That next national election is the general election, which is likely to take place. There's no date confirmed, but likely to take place in the next 12 to 15 months. So really important for us to test that proposition there. And if we end up winning the general election, I think it gives us a mandate to seek negotiations with the UK government of how we put that into democratic effect. And that was Scotland's First Minister, Hamza Youssef, talking to me earlier this week here in Brussels. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Next week, we're heading to Spain to unpack the politics driving political change in the country and to understand more about the country's priorities and goals as it takes over the rotating presidency of the Council of the EU. So until then, thanks this week to our producer and editor, Christina Gonzalez. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. See you next week.